Well, how are you? How you doing? I'm so glad to be here tonight. Uh, are you glad to be here? I hope so. Uh, I am very excited. Like every week, I'm very excited about what God is doing in our little church. Um, there are great things happening. I want to let you know at both of our campuses, both of our campuses, Taylor and Riverview, uh, we have had 77 new people sign up to partner with us by joining one of our serving teams in the last month. That is pretty amazing. And, and here's why, I think, because we've been talking a little bit uh, about this idea of getting out of the stands, getting out of the seats, and getting into the game, getting into the field, getting down on the field, and making this world better by partnering together because of what Christ has done in some of our lives. We want to respond to that. We want to move forward with that. We want to begin to be part of what he is doing here on earth. Now, whether or not those 77 people kind of continue and, uh, you know, Make it all the way into the teams? I don't know. I hope so. I hope that you follow through. But it is so encouraging to me to see people responding, saying, God, I want to be used. Is that cool? I think so. Um, So we're in a series, and we're calling it the Tupperware Gospel. But really, it's an old-fashioned book study. It's kind of a through-the-Bible kind of a study where we just started at the beginning of a book and are just making our way through. And I know it's kind of old school. I know it's kind of old-fashioned to do this. Uh, But our thought was we would just start at the beginning, and whatever it says, that's what we're going to talk about. Whatever it leads us to, we're not going to skip over it. We're not going to pick and choose the parts we like. We're just going to talk about it all. Is that cool with you all? Is that cool on both campuses? I hope so. Uh, And so we are in the book of Colossians. And one of the reasons we've been talking about this idea that that it's the Tupperware gospel is because uh, for so many people, God is somewhere out there that it's hollow, it's shallow, it's empty, and that God is maybe at best that he's with you, maybe at best he's somewhere around you, maybe at best you feel his presence. But, But the scripture leads us to something more than this. The, the idea that we're going after is that not only is Christ around you, not only is God's spirit around you, but if you have faith, if you come to him and invite his leadership into your life, if, if you trust him and put your hope in him, the scripture says something crazy. You want to know what it says? You want to know? It says that he comes and he takes up residence inside of you. The spirit of the living God, he comes and he dwells in you. He makes his home in you. So no longer is it just God is with you, which is pretty sweet. But it is better than that. God is in you. And those two words change the entire God-man relationship. And so, I don't know if you caught the earlier part of this series, uh, but we've been talking all about this, and maybe you don't quite understand how the Tupperware relates, but I, I would just say to you, watch last week's video. We were in the city of Detroit, and we took the Tupperware, and we tried to explain to total strangers the entire Christian message in two minutes using Tupperware. It was pretty sweet, okay? And so if you're not quite up to speed, go back and watch it, and I think that will serve you well, so if you have a smartphone or if uh, you have an old-fashioned Bible, I would love for you to turn uh, to the book of Colossians, and we're going to spend some time in the book of Colossians. But before we get there, um, I want to tell you that this message today is entitled, Don't Be Faked Out. Don't believe a lie. Think about it. Don't be faked out. Because you know this, right? You know this. It's easy to be faked out in life. You think you're smart. You think you're sly. Ah, but the truth is you can be faked out. Every one of us can be deceived. And we're going to have a warning brought to us to make sure that our lives stay on track today. So I want to have a little fun to get this started. I'm going to play a little video for you because I want to warn you, don't be faked out. Check this out.
Isn't that great? Oh my goodness. I mean, where are you going to go? You're going to go back in and go, wait, 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 what am I doing? This is incredible. Uh, so this idea that it is easy to be faked out. So let's talk about where we've been. Uh, last week, if you were with us, you know we've talked about this idea. We've got to learn this little phrase that says, uh, you, you need to serve the gospel. You need to serve this gospel because it has served you. And you get the idea, right, that if Christ has done anything in you, then a reasonable response is to offer him your life. It is reasonable if Christ means anything. Now listen to me, friends. If you're a believer in this room, uh, if Christ means anything to you, he ought to mean everything to you. If you, ought to, if you love him, you ought to love him first and most in your life. He ought to be preeminent in your life. And so we got around this idea that a reasonable response is to, is to serve this gospel. We've been saying that uh, for, for those of us who have a real relationship with God, and I don't know that you do, but if, you, if this is important to you personally, then there is no more sideline Christianity. There is no more sitting around making sure somebody else gets the job done. There is no more sitting idly by as the church runs circles around you trying to serve you and teach you and teach your kids and raise your kids. That's not it at all. Um, sitting idly by, letting somebody else pay the way. Sitting idly by and letting everybody else do the work of the kingdom of God. The only reasonable response, as we learned last week, is to give your life to this cause called the church. His church. Because what Christ has done in you, you want to put him first and you want to put him most in your life. And so, we're going to pick it up, and Paul, the writer of this, he's a pastor, and he cares about this little church, and, and he's been talking about this idea of what Christ has done for us, this thing called the gospel, and, and he, he starts off much the same way, and, and we're going to pick this up in just the very first verse. We're going to cover the first eight verses, first eight verses, and we're going to try to speed the whole series up a little bit, but we've taken five weeks on the first chapter, and the summation is the only reasonable response is to give your life, make God first and most. Make sure it's a big Jesus and a little religion. Follow him, right? So we're gonna read this out of chapter two now. We're gonna just pick it up. We're gonna cruise right through it. He says this, verse one. He says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea. So there was the church of Colossians, of the Colossians and the Laodicean church, two cities that were near each other. And he writes them one letter and they share it between the two. And he says, let me tell you something. I care about you. I'm your pastor. I work hard for you. And I want to tell you how much I've agonized over this. I've worked for this. I've sacrificed for this. He's reminding them of how much they care or he cares about them. And so he says this. He goes, I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other friends who have, uh, who have never even known me personally. Again, he's saying, this is what pastors do. This is what people who care about the gospel do. They work hard at it. They agonize over it. They care. They shepherd. They, they try to move people forward. And he says, here's why. Here's why I've given my life to this cause. You want to know why we do what we do as Christians? Paul says, here it is. Here's why we do it. My goal Listen, my goal is that they may be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have full confidence because they have complete understanding of God's secret plan, which is Christ himself. In other words, remember we talked about that so many people have this idea that God is this mystery. God is somewhere out there and not really to ever be known. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not true. God can be known. You can know God. You can have a personal relationship with him. This is the mystery of the God-man relationship. And the answer to that mystery is found in 
Christ. You need to have a big Jesus in your life and a small religion. Don't get them confused. Y'all with me on this? He says, have a big Jesus and a small religion. He says, listen, he says, in him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying, if you want to know how to build your life, how to move forward with your life, build it on Christ. Make sure he is the rock, the anchor of your life. In him lie the answers to wisdom and knowledge. Then he says this, verse four, listen to this. I'm telling you this, here's why. I'm telling you this so that no one will be able to deceive you with persuasive arguments. Don't miss this because you may remember in one of the earlier weeks we we read where Paul says there are these teachers coming after you. And he called them, anybody remember? False teachers. Remember this? And he was saying, there's a bunch of people who are coming around the Christian church and they're making a, they're de-emphasizing Jesus. They're saying, you know what? We really, we got to get around, we got to get around the right songs. We got to make sure it's built around a music program. We got to make sure it's built around a rock star preacher. We got to, we got to emphasize all these other things. And they were de-emphasizing Jesus. And Paul comes along and says, no, no, no. They have all these persuasive arguments, how they're trying to mix. They're trying to mix thoughts of, of the world and the religious actions of the world. And they're trying to mix them with the teachings of Jesus and Paul says knock it off you stay focused on Jesus make sure he is center and central to your life and to your church y'all with me on this and so he says you better watch out because they have persuasive arguments don't be faked out don't be lied to and then he says for though I am far away from you my heart is still with you and I am very happy listen to this very happy because you are living as you should and because of your strong faith in Christ, he's saying, keep Jesus where he is because these other people want to take you away. But some of y'all, I'm hearing good things. Some of y'all are keeping Christ right in the center of it all. You're working on it. You're, you're walking after him. You're, you're taking your next steps toward him. You keep doing that. You keep doing that. You keep it up. And then he says this. And now, listen, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must, what is this word? Say it. Continue. Let's try this again. You must what? continue. He says you must continue in your faith to live in obedience to him. Let your roots grow down deep into him and draw up nourishment from him. He's saying that you keep Christ in the middle of it. You keep going after him. You keep opening his word. You keep getting around his teaching. You keep around getting around his people. There is something that is going to grow inside of you. Pause for a second. Some of you came into this church somewhere along the way. And there was a big part of your life that was, that was barren, that was a dried up soul. But by getting around God's word, by getting around God's people, by getting around his church, by, by being nurtured along, right? What's come alive in you? Your soul. It slowly comes alive in you. And something is reborn in you. Something is renewed in you. Something is restarted in you. You ever have that experience? Anybody in the room? You know what I'm talking about? And this is what it does. He says, you get around the right things. You keep eating and drinking from Christ. You keep putting him first and center and it will grow a strong and vivacious in the truth that you were taught. Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done for you. Now listen to this. He says, take your next steps, grow deep. But then here it is, there's a warning. This is big and we're gonna land here. This is where we're gonna land. He says, don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the evil powers of this world and not from Christ. He puts this warning out there and he says there's a whole bunch in this world that wants to take you off your spirit game. 
There's a whole bunch in this world that wants to take you from the Jesus that you say you love, that has changed you, that has grown you. Anybody in the room want to say, yep, I agree. There's a whole bunch out there that wants to take me away. Listen, he's saying this is going to be the battleground of your soul. And you need to be prepared to fight. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to say a very, very simple prayer. And I'm going to ask God to, to open our hearts, open our minds. And then we're just going to unpack this idea of the battleground of our mind a little bit. Okay? So pray with me. So Father, tonight uh, we just take a moment and we ask that your spirit would speak into this room. God, nobody needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you and your word. So speak, oh God, for your child is listening. Amen. Well, it was Thanksgiving afternoon in 1971 in Portland, Oregon, and a storm was blowing in. The weather was turning bad. It was rainy. It was windy. It was dreary. And a man about 40 years old buys a ticket for $20 that goes between Portland and Seattle. Tickets were cheap in those days, 1971. And this guy uh, gets on the plane, and when the plane takes off mid-flight, he essentially calls the uh, airline attendant over and hands her a note, and then he grabs his satchel and he opens the satchel to reveal that there was dynamite and a timer in the satchel. Essentially, uh, flight 462 from Portland to Seattle, 1971, was hijacked. It was taken over by this guy, and his name was D.B. Cooper. And so he begins to make a list of demands. He says, when we land in Seattle, I promise you I will clear this plane of everybody but the crew if you have $200,000 in a satchel and four parachutes waiting for me at the gate. Four parachutes. So apparently $200,000 was a lot of money back in 1971. But the guy hijacks the plane. The plane takes off from Seattle, and it's flying over the forest area of Washington State, which is one of the great national forests in the country. And about halfway through this little flight, nobody even knew where they were going, the guy takes the parachute, puts it on, grabs his satchel, kicks open the back uh, exit gate of the, uh, of the plane and literally jumps into the forest and nobody has ever seen Mr. Cooper since. He made out with $200,000. Now, the question is, how in the world does somebody do that? How do you walk in and just take over a Boeing 727? I'll tell you how, it's pretty simple. Because back in 1971, there were no safeguards. There wasn't the security that we have in the, uh, you know, the airports today. You could walk on a plane literally unannounced with a gun or a bomb. It was just a different world back then. Can you even imagine that in today's world? The whole world's different today. But this guy literally walks on the plane and hijacks this plane and is never seen again. Paul comes along, the writer of the book of Colossians. He, he comes along and he says, don't you get it? Your soul is running the risk of being hijacked. Don't, don't you know what he's saying? He's saying that, that if you're not careful to build in some safeguards, if you're not careful, you will be swept away by these philosophies and these high thinking types of things that will sound good on the hearing, but will end up leaving you bankrupt inside. He says, you're, if you're not careful, you'll be led astray by empty philosophy and high sounding nonsense that come from human thinking, which is from the devil, or it's pure evil of this world, right? He's saying you're suckered in, you're watching too much TV, you're, you're getting your truth from the Oprah show. You're getting your truth from the Dr. Phil show. You're getting it from Rob Bell. You're getting it from, uh, from the ladies on The View. Ooh. 
And you're saying that's the ultimate source of your truth. You're saying that that's what's guiding you. He says, if you're not careful, you're gonna fill your soul with all the stuff that TV pumps into you, that, that reading pumps into you, that the Kindle account pumps into you, that the internet pumps into you. All of these philosophies that wanna take you somewhere away from the heart of God, you're gonna let Katy Perry decide what's moral for you. You're gonna let The weekend, uh, their album, decide how you think about life. If you're not careful, it says there's gonna be a whole bunch of stuff that sounds good, but it's gonna end up in a world of trouble for you. Now, how many in this room would admit there are some things that sound pretty good in this world? How many would admit that, that you would say, you know what, my heart has been taken away at different times into things that only landed me in trouble? I think most of us would at some point or another. Uh, and, and Paul comes and he says, if you are gonna follow Christ, I gotta warn you, don't be faked out. Don't believe a lie. Don't buy into Hollywood. Don't buy into culture. You gotta lock your eyes. You gotta fix your eyes on something else, something that's solid, something that's not going to move. Now listen, friends, uh, there is a philosophy in our world today, and I've seen it just in my lifetime, it's, it, there's been a sweeping philosophical change in our world, just in the last 30 or 40 years. And some of you people who are older, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's the idea that wrong and right is movable. It's, it's the idea of what we call relativism. Have you heard of this? It, it, relativism is this concept, it's this idea that says there is no absolute truth, that truth is movable, truth is subjective, truth is relative to your opinion at the moment. I, I saw a video just a couple weeks ago and it literally blew my mind. It, it, it was devastating for me to see. Uh, this film crew, they went to a bunch of major college campuses across the country and they essentially were asking students about what they thought of abortion. Now, hang with me for a second. This isn't a political statement, nothing like that, okay? I'm not gonna lecture you about the idea of abortion so much, but I want you to get what was thinking, what the thinking was in our culture. They essentially wanted to know what students were thinking about abortion. And, and, and they said, uh, for those students that thought abortion was basically the right of the, of the mother or the right of the woman to choose, they said, why? They simply pressed in a little deeper. Why does she have this right? And here was the collective kind of answer um, to, to, to almost all the students. They kind of got around the same thing. They basically said that the value of the life was dependent upon the value the mother placed on that life. Can anybody see that this is how culture thinks about this issue though? It's up to the mother and the mother's value upon this unborn baby. And so essentially they ask this question. So if the value of the life is dependent upon the mother, when does the mother's rights stop? And they kind of press into this issue. And I'm gonna tell you, it was so devastating to my soul to see what was going on in the culture right around us. Because what they basically said was, well, they used this phrase, this, uh, the film crew used this phrase to kind of catch some of the students. They said, they said, well, should there be post-birth abortion? Should there be post-birth abortion? And this will blow your mind. The vast majority of the students that said, yes, it, the value is dependent upon the value the mother plays, also said yes to this idea that there should be this thing called post-birth abortion. And then some of them tried to say, well, you know, it does sound kind of crazy, maybe we should draw a line, like at age two. Some of them actually said, at the age 
of two. Friends, that's crazy. This is murder. I mean, we can all agree upon this, right? But they had convinced themselves that, that morality is subjective, that morality has a movable line to it. And they happen to be about the issue of life, something so precious. And they were willing to see that line moved and moved and moved again. Uh, there's this writer out there. His name is Josh McDowell. He's a Christian writer. He's a great man. He's one of these rock-solid Christian thinkers. And he's written a lot of books about issues like this. And he wrote a book several years ago called Right from Wrong. And some of his research was incredible about how there's been this shift in culture, this shift in thinking about right and wrong to this, what they call the postmodern thinking or the new relativism that's out there. And one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, studies that he did was he, he went to a bunch of high schools throughout the country. And in particular, he went to one high school in an affluent area just south of Indianapolis. And, uh, and he basically asked the kids about the, about the Holocaust, about Hitler killing millions of innocent Jews. Now, most of us in this room are familiar with this. You know your history. That Hitler literally decided that a race of people, Jews, were to be eliminated from Europe just because they were Jews. And so most of us would go, whoa, 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 that's wrong. And so they asked these students, is this wrong? Was this a wrongful act? Was Hitler wrong? And the good news, the good news is that they said, oh yeah, Hitler was definitely wrong for, for murdering millions of Jewish people, innocent people. But then they pressed it a little deeper and said, why was he wrong? And the answer, the collective answer was chilling. And I don't even think they realize how crazy it sounded. But what this collective group of about 30 students said was that, was that Hitler was wrong because America won the war. And just like in all of life, the winner makes the rules. The winner decides what's right and wrong. And the same goes for war. Do you see the problem with that? Do you, do you see the problem with that? This kind of thinking is crazy, but what's even crazier was that this particular group of stu uh, students that he studied was at an affluent Christian school where most of these kids came from, from long-time Christian families, and their thinking had moved and moved and moved along the way. Relativism, right? It's this idea that, that right and wrong can be shaped, that it can move, right? And so I hear people say all the time, uh, one of the things about this little study that was kind of cool though, there was one student and only one student in this whole video thing that uh, actually stood up against it. One student said it this way. He said, quote, quote, I think Hitler would have been wrong even if he and the Germans had won the war and brainwashed everyone into believing he was right. He still would have been wrong. This one lone student categorized what we would call absolute truth, absolute moral truth. Only one understood that certain things were always wrong and certain things were always right. Do you see this? So I hear all the time, and it blows my mind, but people go, well, maybe you think adultery's wrong, but who are you to tell me that it's wrong? People say this in my office. Or they go, well, who are you to tell me that sleeping around is, is wrong or, or uh, uh, homosexuality is wrong? And, and what it is, friends, is listen, there is this moving line and they accuse people who think that there is something right and that they think that there is something wrong. They accuse people like me of being unloving and judgmental and unkind and all those things. Not it at all. It's just I don't think we should move the line all the time. I don't think it should keep shifting. 
Certain things are wrong and they will always be wrong no matter how it's written. Listen to this, this will blow your mind. One of the latest Gallup polls asking students, college students across the country, um, what they thought about this idea of absolute truth. Is there truth out there that is always true? Are there certain things that are always right and certain things that are always wrong? Ready for this? Here's the result of the latest survey. 82% of college students across the country today say there is no absolute truth. 82% believe that right and wrong is this moving arbitrary line. They believe that morality has been reduced to every man for himself, that it's no longer based on an absolute, on something that's that's concrete and unchangeable, but it's based upon, quote, individual opinions. When I was in college, a freshman many years ago, uh, I spent uh, my first semester at one of the public community colleges, right? And uh, one of my first classes was the psychology class. Day one of school, kid you not, honest to God story. I go in and the professor, he starts his lecture off with this concept. He says, he says, this whole idea of religion has ruined people. Opening line of the class. This whole, this whole idea of sin, this whole idea of right and wrong has done untold damage to millions and billions of people throughout human history. And of course, some of y'all know me, and I'm like going, huh? I mean, I was a new Christian at the time, and I wasn't the brightest kid on the block, and I, I was still trying to figure out this whole thing, but I knew something did not quite sound right about this, and so um, he, he goes into this idea, he says, there is a different world out there. And he says, we live in a world where there are no absolutes. And I'm going to spend this semester trying to convince you of this. So, uh, you know me, I have trouble keeping my mouth shut sometimes. And so I put my little hand up and uh, the best I can remember, I say something like this. Are you certain about that? And he catches on to me real quick and he goes, oh, I see what you did. He called me clever boy. I remember, he calls me clever boy. And then he says this, he says, uh, he says, well, let me correct or revise my remark. If, remember, if I can remember correctly, he said, uh, the only absolute statement is that there are no absolutes. That was his revision. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. And then we started to argue a little bit and got my fire up a little bit. And I'm like, wait, 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 what about this idea of sin? You're saying that there is no right and no wrong. There's, it's all arbitrary. And he says, exactly. It's what we decide it is. It's what culture decides it is. It's what the group think decides it is. Pause for a second. Can you see this in all of society now? This is 25 years ago, but can you see it all playing out now? Can you? I think so. And, and so uh, he, he talks about this idea that, that it's all group thinking. I said, well, hold on, hold on. What if, and I probably shouldn't have used this example, but it's the only thing I could think of when I was 18. I said, what if I don't like what you're teaching and I come in here with a gun and I put it to your head and pull the trigger? Would that be wrong? Of course, he didn't like that that much, but he said, yes, that would be wrong. And I said, well, why would that be wrong? He says, because we have decided that it is against the law to do that. As a society, we have decided it is against the law to murder. And so, the best I could, I said, well, then, then why was the Holocaust wrong? Because in the land of Germany, they decided as a society that it was okay to arbitrarily kill innocent Jewish people, six million of them to be exact. And you know what he said? This blew my mind. Blew my mind. He said, 
it wasn't wrong. Because that society deemed it to be right. I was young and dumb, but I knew that that was crazy. And I told him. I literally said, you're crazy. And he said, you need to leave my class. So literally, on the first day of my first college class, I got kicked out. So that's pretty awesome. Um, I'm just saying. But I graduated anyways. Okay, so... uh, it's a scary thing that, that the world tries to justify certain things and Paul comes along and says, don't be fooled. This world wants to sweep you away. This world wants to catch you up in a whole bunch of philosophies. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human thinking or human traditions based on the principle of, the, of this world rather than on Christ. Uh, I read this little article about um, a building built at Ohio State University. They called it the Wexner Art Center. And it boasts of being a building, quote, designed for being a post-modernist view of reality. I'm not even sure what that means. But essentially, this building was an abstract building. They spent millions of dollars building a building where staircases led to nowhere, where pillars held up nothing, where doors opened up to a a wall, where windows were unopenable, and when you looked through them, they looked into a block wall. It was an abstract thing. And so the architect that built this uh, building in this little article said that it was meant to be, quote, a reflection on modern life. A reflection on modern life. I'm thinking, this sounds stupid to me. But it says this. He goes on, he says, quote, the the building's design goes nowhere and is mindless and senseless. And I think he's right. It is a reflection on modern philosophy where right and wrong can be moved depending on how you feel on a certain day. Pause for a second. I want to ask you a serious question. Anybody in this room ever make a very poor decision because you felt it was the right thing to do at that time? Point proved. Right? Right? I mean, come on, right? Because what you knew to be good, what you knew to be right, what you knew to be wholesome, what you knew that would end up in the best possible manner, you did the opposite because you felt like it. And feelings change. Feelings can sweep us off our feet. Feelings can take us somewhere where we do not want to end up. And Paul warns us against this. Matter of fact, listen to this. A guy named W.H. Auden, he uh, was a writer, a poet, um, an author back in the early 1900s. And and he was uh, reflecting back on where culture was heading way back in the early 1900s. And listen to what he wrote. This blew my mind when I read this. He says, I think that, uh, I think what was at the heart of the dread in those days. So he's looking back and he goes, there's a lot of dread, there's a lot of anxiety. He goes, what was at the heart of the dread in those days was that we could tell we were beginning to lose God, banishing him from the scene and from our own consciousness, losing the assumption that he was part of the daily drama or its maker. Uh, It's a terrible thing when people lose God. Life is difficult and people are afraid. And to be without God is to lose man's greatest source of consolation and coherence. Wow. And this was way back in the early 1900s, he writes this. Let me ask you, is your life ever chaotic? Does your life ever feel a little out of control? It's like you, it's spinning and it's spinning and you can't seem to grab a hold of it? Let me tell you something, friends. Christ, Paul is saying, is the glue that holds our life together. He is the driving thought, the driving philosophy of who we are. And if we stay close to him, if we make a big Jesus out of our life, everything else will go well for us. 
He'll keep us anchored. I want to go, why don't you think about this a building at Ohio State University? Uh, just for a moment, you think about how haphazard and crazy and mindless all the stuff on top is. But I guarantee you, if you were to peel all that junk away up on top, there's a rock solid foundation, right? Because nobody's going to invest tens of millions of dollars to build a building that's just going to fall to the ground because the foundation is moving everywhere, right? And, and it seems to be true that, that we need to build our lives on something that is unmovable, something that, that, that is going to anchor us. Because let me tell you something, friends, you know this to be true, that the winds of culture, the winds of life, they come blowing and they come nailing you and they come pushing you in every different direction. And there has to be something that anchors us, something that is foundational to our soul, something that's going to keep us locked in. And Paul says, for those of us who want to know God, for those of us in this room or on video, if you want to know God, he says, you need to make a big Jesus out of your life. You got to keep him central in your life. You got to lift him up in your life. You need more and more of him because this world wants to blow you every direction. It says, in Christ lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I have up here an old-fashioned compass. Y'all know what a compass is? Uh, what is a compass's job? It shows direction. And it points you in one direction. It points you due, anybody know? Due north, right? So you can spin around with the compass and you can do whatever you want with the compass. And at the end of the day, when it settles, it is going to point an arrow one direction, due north. Now, I'm not a genius. I know I all think I'm a genius, but I'm not a genius. And it's um, <laughs> a joke. Laugh, Okay. <laughs> But listen, I've learned something about the compass. What, what, what the compass has a magnet, and that magnet is attracted to the magnetic pole of the North Pole. That's why they call it a pole, not because of Santa Claus. You realize that, right? It, it, there's a, it literally has a pole. It pulls magnetic force to the north. That's why the compass always lands the same way. It has a magnet that is attracted to the North Pole. Friends, listen to me. Jesus is our compass. No matter how much you spin around like crazy, no matter how much life turns you over and flips you outside the other side, let me tell you something. At the end, if you're still looking at Jesus, you're gonna go due north. If you're still looking at Jesus when it's all said and done, it will go well for you. It'll keep you anchored in life. Let me tell you something. Um, there are philosophies in this world that a whole bunch of us in this very room are buying into. And you say, what philosophies? Thank you for asking. So say this with me. What philosophies? what philosophies? Say it again. What philosophies? Since you asked twice, I'm going to tell you what I think are some of the philosophies in our world. I'm just going to roll out what I think is happening around us. What I think a whole bunch of us are buying into. What I think a whole bunch of us better watch out for in our life. Because it'll chew us up. It'll spit us out. It'll eat up our kids if we are not careful. And I don't want to offend any Jerry Springer fans in the house, but it is the philosophy that guys like him put forth every day that says that everyone is a victim. That is a philosophy of this world that spits people up. Or another philosophy that Jerry Springer puts out is that everyone's a pervert and that you should give in to those desires and run with those desires. That's crazy. That's a philosophy of this world. Uh, it, it's the philosophy that Grey's Anatomy and Friends and other shows like that that put out that says, it's okay to sleep around. Just follow your heart. Do it while you're young. Just run after it. It's okay, nobody gets hurt, nobody ends up with disease, nobody ends up pregnant, and nobody ends up living a life without a daddy in their home. Friends, that is a lie. 
it is a lie that a whole bunch of us in this very room are starting to believe, if not already. Friends, it's, it's the philosophy that modern, the modern family shows uh, that show that, uh, that encourages young people, that encourages young people to explore their sexuality at, when they're 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. It's crazy that you should be able to do whatever you want with whoever you want, whenever you want. Go as far as you can. And there, nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to have a broken heart or a broken soul or a messed up future. Friends, that is a lie. And it's everywhere in our culture, isn't it? Come on, it is everywhere in our culture. It has made sex uh, to be impersonal. It has made sex to be something that is, is meant for you and you alone. And what you get out of it. Instead of being the thing that binds a, a marriage together, that holds it together for a lifetime. It's made it cheap. It's made it an imitation of what God really has for us in this world. It's a modern philosophy of our world. It's a philosophy that says, oh, oh, I hope that couple gets together. They are so wonderful together. I love this couple. They are wonderful, 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 wonderful. The only problem is that they're married to other people. And we cheer it on and we go, oh, they're having an affair. Oh, it's not. oh, I love this movie. And we love what happens in our little offices. It's not an affair. We use the word affair because the word adultery is too harsh. Listen to me. Uh, people act, if you, if you look at what's going on in culture around us, people say you can go ahead and have an affair and they say nobody's really going to get hurt. No homes are going to be broken. No lives are going to be devastated. No children are going to be left without their mommy or daddy in their home. No, no finances are going to be impacted. That's crazy. That's crazy. The philosophy of this world is do whatever you want. And friends, there's a high price to pay for this. And Paul says, you better watch your soul or you're going to be swept right into it. You keep bringing it in, you keep bringing it in, you're going to be swept right into it. It's true, right? It's the philosophy that says, go ahead and entertain yourself with the culture of violence all the time. Just go ahead and watch humanity beat up on one another all the time. Friends, there will be a desensitization of your soul. There will be, oh, no, 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 you're crazy, Jay. No, the reason people have affairs, the reason people lose their temper, temper is so often because they see it all, all around them and they're told that it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Well, friends, it is not okay. It's the philosophy that the advertising world puts out all the time that says, go ahead, you want it, you need it, you gotta buy it. Who cares if you don't have enough money for it? Just go ahead and get it anyways. We'll give you a loan. We'll make easy payments for you, but you never even knew the product existed two days ago, but now you gotta have it or you're a loser. And the world says this is okay and normal and we march to that beat and we run after it and we enslave ourselves financially to it. And worse than enslaving ourselves financially to it, we don't have a soul satisfaction because we always want something more. Something more. And it's dangerous, friends. We keep bringing it in and we keep moving step after step toward these wrong desires or these wrong philosophies. It's the philosophy that says that we should accept immodesty just because it's beachwear. Move on, Jay, move on. It's the philosophy that says that we should accept vulgar language because it's everywhere anyways. We should let our kids talk however we want to talk. Who cares? Really? It's the philosophy that, of the sexual revolution that says that men 
can marry men and women can marry women. It's a sexual revolution that says that, that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man. And as a culture, we totally ignore where that hurts, where those decisions come from, the hurt, the pain, usually the abuse from which those decisions flow. And we just say it's okay. And we just celebrate it rather than dealing with the real lies from which those things came. It's the philosophy of this world, right? You see it. I see it. It's everywhere. It's the philosophy that gets us to accept as normal and healthy this thing called divorce. We just think it's okay that everybody does it and it's just part of life. Or, or, or debt or sleeping around or drug abuse or alcohol abuse or pornography abuse or, or uh, prescription pill abuse, right? It's just part of our world. It's okay. It's no big deal. Friends, that comes from buying into a philosophy that says your soul will be satisfied over there. And we get swept into it. And it's not just people out there. It is people in here as well. We get swept into it. And it's a philosophy that says, you don't have to forgive. Or it's the philosophy that says that, that you can't be forgiven. Friends, these things are destructive. And if we're not careful, Paul says that we are going to be swept up into them. That we have to guard our heart and follow Jesus, make a big Jesus out of our life. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. We're going to leave Colossians, and there's this verse in Thessalonians that says, uh, in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, test everything. Test it. Make sure it's right. Don't just bring it into your life. Test it. And then he says, here's what you do after you test it. You hold on to those things that are good, and you avoid every other kind of evil. Amen. You test it. You don't just sit there and go, oh, I wonder what this movie is. Oh, this is wonderful. He says, you better put up some safeguards and test it in your life. This guy's coming along and he's handsome and he's charming and he's funny, but there's an emptiness of soul there that won't lead you anywhere good. He says to test it. He says to test it. Make sure it's good for the soul. Make sure it brings you closer to Christ. Here's what it says. It says, in the book of 2 John, it says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring God's teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Pause. It's not talking about if your neighbor comes and asks you to borrow a shovel. It's talking about a guy who's trying to change who you are. It's trying to lead you in a different direction. And we don't, we don't resist that. What we do is we buy the cable package and we just pump it into our living room. We, we stream it all into our life. And I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying we should watch it carefully. We should guard our hearts from those things. We should test it before it gets pumped into our soul and to the souls of our kids, right? And people go, well, you're such a prude, Jay. You're such a prude. You're just weird. You're just weird. You're adults. You can handle this. I'm adult enough to know that it'll lead me nowhere good. Amen. That's what I am. <laughs> That's what I think. And he says, he says, don't welcome it to your house. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked ways. In other words, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You show me what you're bringing into your heart, that's all you're going to become. That's what you're going to become. And I'm just saying, this is a hard truth he's teaching us today. This isn't easy to preach. Because I know there's going to be some people who are going to be offended, you're going to want to leave and all that stuff. But let me tell you, this is what it says. 
This is what it means. That we have to somehow guard our heart. And so Paul says, you got to be careful with this. You got to be careful with this. You got to make sure there's guards in your life. He says, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to him. Let your roots go down deep into him and you draw up nourishment from him so that your faith will grow strong and vigorous in the truth that you were, that you were taught. So says you need to put down roots. And so the problem is with so many of our lives is that there is nothing down deep. And so we look good up on the top and we look pretty up on the top. But if you uproot it, it's just a bunch of plastic. It's shallow and empty. And that will go away. We fix up the external modification thinking that there's okay on the inside, but there's no foundation on the inside. What he says is you need, a, you need to have roots. You need to put down roots in your life. This is what you ought to look like, that there's something nice growing up on top, and it may not look always as pretty as this over here, but there's something down deep inside of you, something that's going to hold you when the world starts knocking, when the world starts blowing, when the world comes against you. There's going to be something deep in you, and they're called roots, and so you better figure out a way to plant yourself right there. Put it down. Right? And so, friends, let me tell you something. The problem with this whole message is that you and I, we can't get it right all the time. There are times that we can get it right, but we can't get it right all the time. We, we need to have something at work in us because our natural default is to fix the outside. But this is the whole point of the Tupperware gospel. This is the whole point of Paul writing to us that the hope of glory is inside of you. That the hope of anything good growing in your life and changing in your life and becoming what God wants you to become is because Christ is at work in you, right? That he's inside of you and that, that you're in here somewhere and right in this little thing right there, there's you, there's you. And Christ is in you. And because he's in you, now there's an internal work. And then because Christ is in you, you're in Christ. And so you're right there. And now you got Christ in you and Christ around you and Christ with you. And because of that, you have God in your life. You have God. You're in the heart of the Father because you're centered on Christ. Big Jesus, small religion. Big Jesus, where he becomes the, the desire of your heart. It says you get your nourishment from him. You hear me? From him. You want more of him. And it pushes, listen, when we get more of Jesus in us, man, it just, uh, it makes the things of this world look a little less appealing and a little less deceptive, doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about? When you know what the truth is, you can pick out a lie a lot easier. Y'all hear me? Amen? All right. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to have you stand at both campuses. Would you go ahead and stand with me, please? Go ahead and stand. And I'm going to just lead us in a prayer at the end. And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. Um, if there was anything that I said that was untrue, I pray that God's spirit would take it from you, that you won't remember it at all. But I also pray that if anything I said was true, that it would resonate in your soul and that you'd put it down deep in your soul because we are in a battle and there is a war that wages for our homes and for our families and for our very soul. It's true. It's just true. So Father in heaven, um, I just take one second or one moment to just to tell you thank you for your work in my life 
God, for saving me, for changing me, for growing me up a little bit. And God, I fully admit that there are some things in this world, some philosophies, some thoughts, some temptations that want to just take me away, God, and it's easy to, it's easy to be tempted by them. It's easy. But God, I, I need you. I want you. I want you to be first and most in my life. Maybe you need to say something like that to God. Same thing for you. Admit what you struggle with. Admit the philosophies and the temptations that are, that are trying to take you off. And tell him that you want more of him. You want to put your roots down with him. Father, I want to grow in my walk with you. Jesus, I want more of you. God, help me to understand your word. Help me to open your word on my own. Help me to, to love you as, as the highest, the preeminent, the, 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 the first and the most in my life. Help me to love you, God. Help, please be everything to me, Jesus. Speak, oh God, for your child is listening. Amen. Amen.